I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. On this episode of Newt's World, George Soros has had a deep impact in modern politics, using his money to buy power and to influence election outcomes. Using his billions... Soros has influenced media, activist groups, colleges, local elections, presidential elections, and even global elections. In his new book, The Man Behind the Curtain, Inside the Secret Network of George Soros, Matt Palumbo details Soros' extensive targeting of local races to destroy law and order in America. How Soros' decades-long influence in Ukraine played a role in the impeachment hoax, and what leaked documents from Soros' Open Society Foundation Tell us about their agenda and much more. I'm really pleased to welcome back to the podcast, Matt Palumbo. Matt, thanks for joining me. You know, the last time you were on Newt's World was on February 3rd, 2021, and we talked about your last book, Dumb and Dumber, how Cuomo and de Blasio ruined New York. What made you decide on Soros as your next subject? Well, thanks for having me back on. And, you know, Soros has always been a sort of, you know, I'll use the term boogeyman figure, but not in a conspiratorial sense. I think it's actually fine to describe him that way. But I've only really known him more as influencing our national politics. And in the past, let's say, decade, but it's really been more noticeable the past two or three years, his infiltration of local politics has been really changing the way the country functions, particularly when it comes to law and order. And on the left, we've seen this push for 
I mean, they call it police reform or reimagining police, but it's really imagining no police and having no bail and, and having really the least strict penalties possible for certain crimes. And it's one thing to go about that agenda through legislation, but you can really bypass that with DA elections, because if you back a DA and that DA doesn't want to enforce bail or wants to give lenient plea deals, you can just pick that person and they'll do that all for you. I haven't been in politics long enough to know if this is true or not, but I don't think 10 or 20 years ago, anyone would be able to name, you know, the DA of San Francisco or Chicago or major cities, but now they're practically household names. We have Chase Abudin in San Francisco and shoplifting has been effectively legalized. You have people like Kim Gardner, who after the Mikloskis for defending their home. You have Kim Fox, who became a household name during the whole Jesse Smollett incident. Actually, the longest chapter in my book is called George Soros Goes Local. And I just profile each and every one of these people, how much Soros gave them, and really what their underlying ideology is. And it's pretty much the same for all of them. They're all just you know weak on crime. They have this bizarre ideology where if a criminal does something wrong, they somehow see the criminal as the real victim of circumstance. And the chapter is only repetitive in that regard, but in how that philosophy manifests itself and that insanity is different for each person. But there's not a single example of a Soros-backed prosecutor taking office and then crime going down. The only sort of examples of that are with like Chase Abudin, where you'd redefine shoplifting so that nothing counts as shoplifting. And we know that cops aren't going to do anything if shoplifting does happen, so it doesn't get reported. And then he can say, oh, look, there's a decline. Well, that's really the only quote unquote exception to the rule, but it's really just masking the real problem. Tell us about Soros himself. I mean, why is he doing all this? Well, you know, in politics, I always have tried to avoid which seems like a lazy explanation of, oh, this person is just sinister, they just want the worst. But it is actually difficult to find a different motivation for him. And in the introductory chapter of the book, I make it sort of like a loose biography of him just to give an overview of where he came from. And one of the things that's a little surprising to me, because I read all of his books in preparation for mine, is he's very open about being an egomaniac and being self-serving. And, you know, even supposedly positive things I had read about him, like, you know, he helped a lot of post-Soviet countries transition to capitalism. Well, that was all self-serving. He wanted to buy up previously owned state assets for cheap and profit on those deals. So that's the kind of guy he is. In fact, one of the only things he's admitted that he's tried to walk back on, and you might be familiar with it, I think it's gotten a lot of play. He was on 60 Minutes in 1995 and made this admission that kind of stunned Steve Croft, the host, where he was talking about being a Jew in Hungary under Nazi occupation and how he got enlisted by the Nazis to serve deportation notices to Jews and to you know let them know their goods were going to be confiscated. And Croft sort of tried to play cover for him and be like, well, you know, surely you feel bad about this. It must have been hard to go through. And Soros kind of brushes that aside and says, oh, no, I mean, if I didn't, someone else would. And what else are you going to do? And it was a very memorable exchange. And it's funny because if you search Soros's name on most major publications and specifically ones that have a tie into him, it's always about how it's a conspiracy that he said that and how he didn't really say what he meant. So I kind of dug into the history of those claims that he didn't say what he quite transparently said, when I actually found Soros's own father wrote an autobiography and talks about his time in Hungary and his son, George, and it more or less completely proves he said exactly what we heard he said, that it was something he enjoyed doing and it's something he had no remorse for. So it was one of the rare cases of self-awareness from Soros where he needed to lie to kind of cover up his admission. But I also thought that was an interesting story that really stood out to me. Well, but here's why I get confused. I mean, Soros is born in Budapest in 1930. He survives the Nazi occupation of Hungary. Then in 47, he moves to Great Britain, 
He becomes a student at the London School of Economics. After he has a master's and a PhD from the London School of Economics, which was one of the great schools of the world, Soros works at various merchant banks and then goes to America in 56. He arrives with the sole goal of making money, and he ends up being a multimillionaire. Given that background, why wouldn't he be happily American? That is the big question. And, you know, it was true back in the 80s, generally speaking, rich people tended to vote Republican. But in the past, I think, 20 years, but really the past 10, we've seen kind of a huge inversion. And this obviously doesn't apply to Soros particularly, but it seems like the sort of cultural elites have moved far to the left for whatever reason. There are sort of ideas in the left that have become almost luxury ideas where you have to believe them. And if you don't, you're an outcast. The thing about Soros, too, is he said... His goal in moving to America was to make $100 million, and that would be enough for him. He wouldn't need to work anymore. I think his net worth before donating most of it was like close to $40 billion. So I don't know if the guy really knows what he wants in the end, but it is sort of a mystery to me is what drives people like him or Gates or Bezos to the left. It is definitely a question I sort of wonder, and it's, I guess, a psychological thing that I don't know if I'm qualified to answer, but it is noticeable. Soros comes across more demonically, it seems to me, than either Gates or Bezos in the sense that he really wants to methodically spend his money to profoundly change things in ways that undermine what we would think of as a civilized society. I mean, your point about the kind of district attorneys that he backs, these are normally not very expensive races. He puts enough money in that they drown their opponents. And these are really bad people. I mean, they consistently release criminals. They refuse to enforce the law. They re-explain things. So I think in one case, if you go into a store with a gun, but you don't use the gun, you are then charged, I think, with trespass, which is a misdemeanor, as opposed to being charged with a felony for having used a firearm in the commission of a theft. And consistently, Soros is backing people who want to undermine the law, who are anti-police, and in effect, pro-criminal. And I keep trying to figure out why does he do that? And he spends a lot of money. I think he spends more money on politics than Gates or Bezos. It's close to $2 billion a year. I mean, one theory is that he's sort of an accelerationist, and he's sort of a tear it all down to rebuild it kind of guy. I mean, that's one thing that would explain his philosophy. You know, I've been doing politics maybe for 10 or 12 years, and I've always been you know, giving people the benefit of the doubt of, even if you're wrong, I can see where you're coming from and try to understand your logic. And with Soros, it's, I can see where you're coming from and understand your logic, and it's antithetical to liberty. It's quite evil. That, too, was obviously a large a motivating factor for writing the book. Actually, one of the DAs, I can't remember which one it was, I think it was one in Massachusetts, had rewritten the law so that, like, if you shoplifted or stole but could justify that it was for necessity, that would be okay. Drug dealing was largely decriminalized. Breaking into a place, even if it's someone's home, would be considered legal if it was to keep you warm. So if you could break into someone's home and sell drugs out of it and then claim you were just trying to stay warm, and that would be legal there. There's kind of this misperception I've noticed on the left where they kind of think that the reason our prisons are overflowing for like drug offenses or nonviolent crimes, and that's just not true. So a lot of these DAs will campaign on, oh, you know, we won't put you in jail for pot, which obviously isn't really happening anyway, or they kind of phrase it as low-level crimes, and then within you know a day of them being in office, you see murderers getting off. In New York, and this is 
tangential because a lot of these Soros-backed people support so-called bail reform. You know, the problem is there are thousands, if not tens of thousands of laws on the books, and you have to put a panel of people in charge of determining, well, which ones won't we have bail for and which ones will? And it's just really not something that a group of liberals is, is seemingly capable of. So in New York's bail reform law, there was a loophole where if you were an accessory to murder, like a getaway driver, that was considered a non-violent crime. And because non-violent crimes didn't have bail, you could be a getaway driver to a murder and not to post bail. Now, I think they reversed course on that, but it just shows how poorly thought out a lot of these laws are. And the whole defund the police movement, which Soros is backing, you know, I'm actually kind of surprised this doesn't come up more. But if you compare America to Europe, which liberals are very fond of saying we should do, we have 30 percent fewer cops per capita. And they have far more cops on the streets as opposed to, you know, like traffic cops. So, you know, it could be closer to 40 or 50 percent. We should probably be hiring maybe two or three hundred thousand more cops at a time when they're defunding police departments. And many of these police departments have tried to reverse course because they realize their mistake. And the cops simply just, you know, are saying, well, we don't want to come back. Why would we want to, given the environment you've created? From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. In addition to his district attorney problems, it's intriguing to me that he's also, he's a very busy guy. I have a friend who's involved in the upcoming election in Hungary. Soros is a player there and in fact was made the central figure in the last election campaign. And they had big billboards with his face and then the international sign for no, the X across the face. He was so active 
in Ukraine, I mean, the estimate you have is you spent $180 million plus in Ukraine since 1991, and the Russian-language Ukraine newspaper Vesti published a list of the most influential 100 people in the country. In 2019, Soros took second to President Zelensky, and the prime minister was in third place. So it's intriguing that Soros, everywhere he goes, he's a center of subversion, undermining the system, and creating chaos. And their former president, Petro Poroshenko, actually personally awarded Soros the highest award in the country. I think it's their equivalent, like a Medal of Honor type thing. It was given to Soros. So yeah, they're very intertwined. And in that chapter, what I think was the most interesting part was there's a lot of ironically named anti-corruption organizations in Ukraine that Soros played a role in funding. There's one called Ant-AC. It's like anti-corruption organization of Ukraine. He accounts for about a fifth of the funding of Another one, it's like Organization on Corrupt Reporting, and they actually played a role in the whole Ukraine impeachment saga, where if you go through the whistleblower complaint, you know, the whistleblower who didn't even listen to the call, there's actually four citations to those anti-corruption organizations that are Soros-backed when making salacious claims about Rudy Giuliani. So there's even a tie-in there with Soros. And there's a very interesting article in Politico about four years ago called Ukrainian Efforts to Stop Trump Backfire. And it points out that, you know, it's throughout all the Russia hysteria, there's actually more anti-Trump focus coming out of Ukraine than there was ever in Russia. And of course, Ukraine had a long history of being very corrupt. So that would not be a great surprise. Yeah, all the ex-Soviet countries, really, which is kind of perfect for him to thrive in, because it's easier to bribe people, it's easier to profit from corruption, so it's you know, right up his alley. But he was also involved here. I noticed that you report that he contributed over $18 million towards trying to defeat George W. Bush in the 2004 election. Yeah, he says something like if he failed there, he would leave the country and never come back, and unfortunately never followed up on that promise. The bright side is with these large elections, and Soros recently actually pledged $125 million to the midterms, is it's fortunately much harder to move the needle in national elections and local ones, which you can just drown with cash. So that's something of a redeeming factor. But he was much more successful in 2020 in that he actually funded a lot of the groups that were trying to change election laws, particularly when it comes to mail-in voting. And I think that could have played a very large role in tipping the scales in that young people were statistically the most anti-Trump while simultaneously the least likely to actually get out and vote. When you mail them all ballots to people who wouldn't otherwise vote, it's going to kind of tip the scales. So that obviously helped Biden quite a bit. You also note that Soros's ties go back to both the Clintons and the Obamas. Can you talk a little bit about that? I just kind of document a history of his associations with Hillary Clinton and how he's raised money for her in the past. I think the main Clinton tie-in is just sort of Soros's dealings with Russia during the Clinton administration. There was sort of like an effort to help privatize various industries in Russia in the early 90s. And Soros was very influential in that and had connections with the Clinton administration that helped him with that. So that's the main Clinton tie-in. And then he gave like a million dollars to the Obama campaign. Yeah, he went big on Obama the first term. He actually complained. This was sort of revealing that he didn't have enough access to Obama. And that's why he gave less the second time. Even though he didn't have Obama's ear, according to him, obviously all the agenda items he was focused on aligned with Obama's agenda. But I did think it was revealing that he was more than willing to admit, you know, I don't like this guy because he didn't bend the knee as much as I wanted him to. You then had Soros come back and decide to defeat Trump. So he helps create Democracy Pact, and he gives it $70 million, which would have made him the largest individual backer of Biden. It's clear not only is he on the left, but he's willing to be a major player by putting in 
pretty substantial amounts of money. Yeah, and he's pledged tens of millions to just various groups that are going to carry out Biden agenda items like Black Lives Matter, Build Back Better, which fortunately is dead, and just anything related to that. So yeah, he's very big on the Biden agenda, though fortunately it seems like it's largely stalled thanks to like Manchin and Cinema, and it's not looking great for the Democrats during the midterms. So we have that as a bulwark, fortunately. When you look at the district attorney elections in Chicago, Kim Fox presided over Chicago's largest spike in homicides in more than 30 years, while her office was dropping charges against 30% of the felony defendants. In Diana Becton's first year in office, four cities in her county made the list of the top 100 most dangerous cities in California. During Monique Worrell's tenure, violent crime increased dramatically with murders increasing by 26% in 2020. In Philadelphia, D.A. Krasner, backed by Soros, prosecuted the lowest number of felony cases in 30 years, while the city saw 499 homicides. George Gaskin, the Los Angeles DA, announced that he would no longer prosecute crimes that he says are associated with poverty. And of course, in his case, there's now an active recall petition underway with the sheriff of Los Angeles County leading the effort. Chesse Boudin, who is a communist who openly worked for Chavez, whose father is serving a life sentence in prison for killing a Brinks guard back in 69 as part of a Weatherman political robbery campaign. Boudin had tried 23 cases, resulting in 16 convictions, but to March 2021. During the same time, now remember, 23 cases, 16 convictions. In that same time period, his predecessor tried 294 cases and got 203 convictions. And in fact, Boudin is also one of the people who has a recall petition. Raul Torres in Bernalillo, New Mexico, has had 102 homicides in 2021, the highest number ever recorded. And in 2021, the Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg, sent a memo stating his office would not be seeking prison sentences for crimes such as armed robbery, drug dealing, and burglary. And after that, more than nine career prosecutors quit. And Bragg is one of the people who I think is at the heart of New York's surge in murders. And I suspect that he is presently going to find himself out of office. At that level, it just strikes me that Soros has been an endlessly dangerous influence on creating a pro-criminal, anti-police environment. That's the thing. I mean, they don't even mean well. And you see what happens in all these cases. They take office. Generally, they fire almost everyone who works there. So you lose decades to hundreds of years of experience. In many of these cases, they'll bring in prosecutors who've never tried a murder case before. And seemingly by design, they want people who are incompetent so they don't actually have to do anything. Then, you know, as you were reading from the book, the percent of crimes they prosecute go down and the conviction rates go down. And there's no winners in any of this. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. 
I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. A couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters— I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. And to extend beyond politics, Soros also has really worked on the news media in 2010 and 11. Contributed 250000 to ProPublica. He founded the Center for Public Integrity, which is a left-wing media organization, giving him a million dollars between 2003 and 2008, and over 650000 in 2009. He also funded the Center for American Progress, Media Matters, Sundance Institute, and National Public Radio, $3.7 million from 97 to 2020. I mean, he clearly has both a political and a cultural vision of the kind of America he wants to create. And it strikes me that it's radically different than the one that you and I would like to see. I think that goes without saying. And yeah, in that chapter on the media, I didn't want it to have any media connections that are like, you know, Soros knows a guy who knows a guy. So I just looked for any examples where someone who served or serves currently on a Soros-related board that also works for publication, I included them as being a Soros-backed publication through that connection. And it's, as you read, I mean, that and all just household names, The Times, CBS, ABC. And if you want to see the impact that has, just type his name into the search bar, into those websites, and there's never anything critical of Soros. The only time there'll be something critical is just to say it's somehow anti-Semitic to notice that this guy is doing things he's doing publicly. Isn't it a fact that he is very, very aggressive in attacking people who are critical of him? Yeah, so you read the Media Matters was funded by him, and that was actually spawned by Glenn Beck. I think it was 12 years ago now, he did a very extensive series on Fox reporting on Soros. 
and that's what actually prompted him to donate a million. And when I was talking to Glenn, I think it was a week or two ago, he said that he got personal, like his staff was getting threats from people connected to Soros following that. And, you know, thankfully nothing came of it. But yeah, he's very protective of the brand. Almost to a point of being hyper. Given how aggressive he is trying to change the rest of us, it's amazing that he's equally aggressive in blocking us from trying to deal with him. As you pointed out earlier in his books, he's quite clear about how egocentric he is. And I think that's what we're dealing here with a billionaire with a huge ego who really wants to profoundly change America in ways that would be, I think, very bad for the country and certainly very bad for our values. I'm curious, I mean, didn't that sort of slow you down in writing the book? Soros is not a guy who takes kindly to people who are critical of him. Didn't that bother you when you said, oh, I think I'll go write about George Soros? Yeah, I got warned by a number of people, actually. And Glenn Beck sort of joked uh, as having me on the air. He's like, we got Matt Palumbo while he's still alive. So, yeah, it's definitely been a concern. I mean, and there are things you have to take into account. Like there's the risk that he just sues you just for the sake of it. So, you know, fortunately, the libel laws in this country are such that it would kind of make it very hard for him to do that. But, I mean, we can't publish a thing in Canada because he could just sue us there and even if we're right, it's still going to cost us a ton of money. So there's little things like that that I was definitely cognizant of in writing it. And I don't want to sound grim, but, you know, it doesn't seem like he has that much time left. So I figured maybe, you know, he can't come after me then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because he is, what, 91 years old? 91, yeah. I looked at the statistics. I think the average 91-year-old lives like another 40 years is what I read. So, you know, maybe that buys me some time. <laughs> But hasn't he also basically trained his son to basically follow in his footsteps? Yeah, so hopefully they don't come after me. But yeah, that's the last chapter of the book I touch on. Well, what's next? Because obviously he's late in life. And I think I mentioned in the beginning of the book, he donated like 30 billion or so of his own money to his charitable foundation, which gives him one big tax write-off and then lets him spend it on whatever he wants tax-free. And a lot of that, I mean, why now of all times? Well, I think it's sort of estate planning. He wants that money to be there for his sons to use. He also did make it clear, like initially he was worried that foundations tend to stray from their founder's vision, but now feels like he has the right people in place. So presumably his sons are up to the task and they're going to be the new Soros going forward. Yeah, no, I think that's remarkable. Well, this is a fascinating book, The Man Behind the Curtain, Inside the Secret Network of George Soros. But I'm curious, what's your next big project going to be? So one idea I'm floating is I've been getting kind of annoyed with the so-called fact checkers because I feel like their accuracy is like less than 50%. I run Dan Bongino's Facebook page and like it seems like once a month a fact checker will ding a post of ours and then we'll go through it and prove them wrong and then email them and they'll have to retract the notice on our post. So I've done like 30 or so articles that are in the theme of fact checkers being fact checked. But I'm asking people to sort of crowdsource other examples of like, what are fact checks that are probably nonsense? So I'm thinking I'll do a book, Fact Checks Exposed or Fact Checking the Fact Checkers, but something to that effect, just exposing how political it is. And to people who are unaware of it, Facebook will partner with so-called third-party fact checkers. But it's really a Trojan horse. And if you're on Facebook, Facebook determines a certain percentage of your audience that your posts will appear in. So if you have a million followers, they might decide, okay, it'll appear in 5% of their feeds. Well, if you post something that they determine has been fact-checked, they will throttle that percentage downward. And a lot of the time, like with the Hunter Biden story, they'll just find one fact-checker who spends 30 minutes disagreeing with you. They're not really fact-checking you. They're just disagreeing. 
that's enough though for them to ding your post and throttle your page and it could be for months you're not reaching as many people as you're supposed to so i sort of have a vendetta on these people and kind of want to document how wrong they all are all the time yeah because they actually kind of push the whole system downward seems to me that they don't necessarily have to kick you off the system they just have to make sure people aren't going to find you yeah like there was one example from a few months ago where We reported that Biden checked his watch during the transfer of those 13 soldiers we lost in Kabul. And we, of course, got dinged. Some USA Today fact checker said it was wrong. So we looked into it more. And eventually the parents started speaking out. It turns out we were only wrong that he checked his watch once. He checked it 13 times. And the fact checker was trying to claim he never did it at all. And it was afterwards. So it it turns out like the fact checker was technically right that we were wrong, but it was more against him than he thought. And we have three dozen or so examples that are just this comical. That's wild. Listen, I want to thank you. I think the work you're doing is very important. And I think you have really found a niche where you can be a very effective explainer of systems that really are a threat to us. And this book, The Man Behind the Curtain, Inside the Secret Network of George Soros, is another one in that tradition. And I hope that when you get done with your next great book, you'll come back and join us again. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to come back. Thank you to my guest, Matt Palumbo. You can get a link to buy his new book, The Man Behind the Curtain, Inside the Secret Network of George Soros, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare i'm jack armstrong he's joe getty we're the armstrong and getty show we cover the stories the mainstream media ignores stories that are important to your life and important to the world the election of course the many trials of donald trump couple of wars gender bending madness why are kids looking at so much social media and we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on but we do it without the left-wing media spin listen to armstrong and getty on demand on america's number one podcast network iheart open your free iheart app and search the armstrong and getty show to start listening 
I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.